Hello everyone, welcome to Mobile DevOps is a Thing, a podcast by Bitrise showcasing developers and their processes from all around the world. In today's episode, we're going to talk about automation, optimizing workflows, release strategies, and the iOS ecosystem. My name is Nora Bezi, and I'm here today with Damian Murphy, technical sales engineer. Hey, Damian. Hey. And our special guest today is Marcos Griselli, iOS engineer from Argentina. Hey, Marcos. Hey, everyone. Marcos, thanks so much for joining. We're really excited to have you here. No, thank you for having me. Marcos, you're not only an iOS engineer, but an open source contributor and one of the organizers of the Swiftable conference in Buenos Aires. So how would you introduce yourself or what is something that we should all know about you? I'm an iOS developer. I've been working on iOS for the past six years. I've been building apps mostly on Swift. And yeah, as you said, I did some open source in the past. I did a bit of everything, you know, a bit of blogging, hosted a, a meetup here in Buenos Aires. And I was part of the team that created the Swiftable conference, which was the first iOS conference in English of the, of the region. So yeah, I've been doing a bit of everything here and there. As you said, Swiftable is the first English language iOS conference in South America as a whole, which is quite a big deal if you think about it, especially because it didn't really feel like a first-timer conference. It was all really professional, well-planned, the venue, and you had great speakers and great events. In general, just the whole experience was great. And I was wondering, how did you come up with this idea or how did this all happen? I didn't have the idea originally, actually, I was approached by the other organizers, Josefina and Facundo, who are iOS developers from Argentina, but they live in Europe. And they saw that the iOS developer community in Europe was quite close because there are so many meetups and conferences nearby. So everyone had the chance you know, to travel and see other speakers in action and get to meet the developers from other countries. So they reached out because I hosted the a meetup here and they say, we want to do the same thing, but, but in Latin America. So people from other countries can come to Argentina and we get to know the community in Latin America. That was a great idea because we realized that there were so many meetups and conferences in different parts of Latin America, but there wasn't an English one that put everything together. So yeah, it was really great to see everyone's feedback from day one. Like anyone that we talked about was super excited about the idea. Speakers, sponsors, attendees, like I think no one ever told us like, uh, that might not be a great idea. Like everyone was on board and we put a lot of work into it. It was a fantastic event and we're super proud about the outcome. Do you have plans for doing it again? Yeah, the idea was to do an annual edition like every year, but of course, 2020 has been a bit rough. So this year is nothing is settled yet, but you know, we might do an online online event. We might postpone it because the great thing about the conference was being together. That's the, what everyone was glad about afterwards that we did so many extra events. I think that the, the talks at the, and the conference hours were of course fantastic, but what we did after hours and all the new people that we met at the event and after was like the, the real added value. Sometimes, you know, online events are not exactly like that. But yeah, we, we haven't decided what we're going to do with it yet. We hope we can be together again soon. 
Nice. Yeah, I really hope it will happen again soon and we can come back. This community aspect that you mentioned is something that I noticed in South America, that personal relationships and word of mouth and just having a strong sense of community are really important. What do you think about this? Yeah, we used to have an iOS and Apple uh, technologies related conference, but it was only in Spanish. And since there are not a lot of iOS developers in the region, we grew very close to the other developers we have. Like there's this meetup that we joined at a coffee place that's been running for like seven years. And it's it's a smaller thing, not strictly technical. We just hang out and talk. And this conference as well, it, it ran for like six years. It was only in Spanish and those people set the basis. And now we, uh, it's not like, you know, every iOS developer in the country, but uh, there's a good pool of iOS developers that participate in this, in this gatherings and you know, people from every company. So it's usually nice to see, you know, someone getting their feet into iOS development and be able to talk with all the developers from, from the big companies here and, and be supportive of them and tell them if your company's looking for, for hiring and that type of stuff. But again, this wasn't a thing in all of Latin America. Like I know a lot of devs from Argentina, but I didn't know anyone from Chile or Uruguay or very few from Brazil. And that's what Swiftable gave us the, the opportunity to do to meet people from, from our neighbor countries. And that was really nice. Yeah, that sounds really nice. And you've also done some, uh, I don't know how I would call it, like tutoring or coaching junior iOS developers. Is I think it's a really nice way of sharing knowledge and uh, techniques among developers. Is this something that's common there? I don't know if it's common. I saw I saw a few people do it. I think it's a, it's a really fantastic way to give back to the community because to be fair, uh, I basically built my whole career on developers pushing out free content out there. Like I learned a bit of development at a company, but then like everything new that I learned or I learned it straight, straight from Apple and their docs and their WWDC talks or someone else pushing a video or a tutorial. And it's it's just crazy that you're able to build a career by learning from people that push free content. And that's like how I got to get a good job. So I try to kind of give back a little bit by doing this. And it was a it was a, a good experience. And I hope more senior developers open up to answer questions or give a handout to people that's just getting started. Mm-hmm. You also contribute quite a lot to the open source library. Yeah, I've done a bit of open source in the beginning. I thought that, well, in the beginning, I... I had like projects that I worked with where all the code was closed source because it was a company or an app and I couldn't share any of my work. So I said like, okay, I'm going to share some code so I can show on interviews on where when someone asks me something, I I can send them, you know, a link to my GitHub and that's it. Then I kind of looked for gaining stars. I thought that was like the status that say like, oh, is your library or code good or not? Once you get popular libraries. I focused on building libraries for UIs and animations and transitions, which is, of course, a very interesting topic. And I gathered like a lot of stars and realized that has absolutely nothing to do with being a good programmer or that your library is actually good. It only means that, I don't know, it caught 
a lot of people's attention. So yeah, I just worked on a few tools that I thought could be useful for people that maybe I worked in my project and the company was okay with me sharing the code. Gladly and gladly this happened. Most of them are no longer that significant because Xcode came with new features and SwiftUI came out. So, you know, libraries that deal with transitions might not be that useful in the future. Or I had a library that helped developers debug their app, like simulating multiple devices. And with Xcode previews, that is pretty much deprecated. Like that library is not going to be a lot super useful in the future, which I'm glad because I don't have to maintain any longer. So yeah, I've done a little bit of it. Perhaps now I'm, I left it for a little while. That's really impressive that you kind of front run the Apple features before they came out, right? You know, I, I played a little bit around with UI collection views and I see you have the, the view animator, which essentially is the same functionality. How would you compare the new APIs that Apple brought out versus, you know, the, the functionality you built prior? Like, I'm glad those libraries are not longer relevant for the future because it means that the ecosystem gained first party support. I think that that particular library is about animating views on with a cascade effect. So a table view will get all their views animated in order or a collection view will do the same. I don't know if there's an equivalent for Swift UI yet, but now that animations are so easy in Swift UI, I can totally envision like they adding a modifier, you know, on show, animate with this type of animation, and then that's it. I don't have to maintain the, the library any longer. So yeah, that's, that's ultimately a good thing that you don't have to maintain it any longer. Yeah, and it's, it's impressive that you were three years ahead of them. <laughs> so that, that's really cool. So, so what sort of new uh, open source projects are you thinking? I don't want to say something that I'm not going to complete later, but in order to, I'm going to say it. And if I don't make it, then that's not a problem. I'm working on a viewer for SwiftUI for the iPhone that lets you test all the available modifiers on SwiftUI. That was kind of my way of saying, okay, I want to learn about SwiftUI and there's lots of modifiers. How can I build something that's, you know, not a simple app? That also lets me understand more about everything. So yeah, I'm working on this, on this little app that lets you lay out a button and then choose whatever modifier you want from a list. I don't have all the modifiers available yet, but ideally I'll have like a good amount of modifiers that anyone can just drag and drop and try, you know, and see how SwiftUI works under the hood because it's not the same if you call padding before setting the background color or the fact that you can have multiple modifiers, like you can have padding and background and padding and background again to create some sort of double background layout. So I think that's pretty interesting and perhaps a bit hard to understand when you come from the UI kit word. So yeah, I'm working on, on, a, on an open source app that will let users do that. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. And it always is a challenge. You kind of have to trial and error when you're using these new uh, features to actually see what they do, right? Yeah, I wished I, I dived into learning more in a step-by-step -step manner, but <laughs> I just jumped into the problem and, you know, banging your head against the wall sometimes is the way to go. Yeah, definitely. How are you managing your Swift libraries that you've built so far? What I do is most of them have the exact same release process 
So of course they are hosted in GitHub. They all have the same, yeah, as I said, they all have the same release problem. I use Fastlane to do like automated releases. They all have tests. So I use Bitrise as my CI for running tests with each PR. And when it's time to release, when, you know, a few fixes and features have been merged and we decide it's time to push a new release, um, I have this Fastlane lanes that take care of, you know, bumping the pod spec version because they're available on CocoaPods. So I have a pod spec file. They bump the pod spec version. They create the Git tag and, you know, they push the content and create the new release inside GitHub. So that is pretty useful. Like I messed it up a couple times before setting the automation. I would have like a release with nothing in it and say like, oh, I pushed the release before actually pushing the tag or that type of stuff, that type of errors when you get started with releases. So once I got the hang of it, I said like, okay, this is super error prone if you're going to do it manually every time. And I had four or five libraries at the time. So I got started with those scripts and or with that Fastlane setup. And now like everything new that I do gets that releases that release from scratch. Oh, very cool. So you're you're kind of doing a full circle, right? You push your pull request, you merge it into master, and then you, you can tag a release from Bitrise back into GitHub. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that, that I'm working on at the moment is automatic versioning for Swift libraries. Uh, that's something I've done at my work. I'm in charge of dealing with the CI workflows. It's it's not actually in charge, but I got started with it and I really started to enjoy it. Whenever I have some free time for from coding features or fixes, I'll I'll put on the CI hat and try to create some optimizations. And one thing we did is like we created a, a new library a couple of weeks ago. And of course, with every new library, you start to push like a lot of new features and fixes constantly every day or every two days, a new release gets done. And that started to cause some problems with our previous setup because we had a setup where every pull request needed to set the new version value. So I send a push with version 1.0 and then you send a pull request with version 1.1. And when there's tons of features being added fast, that can be troublesome because it gets like your release gets merged before mine, your PR gets merged before mine. So now my versioning is out of sync, which of course didn't happen as often with, with our previous setup because we use it on a, on a stable library that got like few fixes every week or every other week. So yeah, I came up with this way to generate a Swift API, like the public API using this tool called Source Kitten that lets you interact with the Swift AST. What we do is with every push to master, we regenerate this API file, this public API file. And if there are changes to the public API, then that means we got a breaking change and we need to release a new major version. And if there are not no breaking changes, if there's no deletions, but there's public additions, that's an additive change and we do a minor release. And if nothing changed in the public API, then we just do a patch release. So yeah, that's super exciting you know, completely remove the need for versioning for our developers. It wasn't that of a problem, but being able to just push code. And that's something that I know that that with CocoaPods can be slightly problematic from time to time. But yeah, it's it's looking really good so far. I wanted to ask something about your 
release strategy. Do you think that there's an idea of frequency of releases or do you think the faster the better? For example, if you want to fix bugs, you might need a different strategy than when you want to push new features. And I was wondering how you decide what's an optimal frequency. I don't think I mentioned it, but I'm working at this software company called Hirsch Group and we do music apps, music learning apps, you know, for ear training or sight singing training, which is super exciting. But at the same time, it could be a bit troublesome to determine when you push new features or when you push your bug fixes, because there's so many things you could do in this area. Like there's always something you can improve or you can increase performance when you're, I don't know, detecting sounds or setting which notes were played or like there's always room, for example. What we like to do and has been working for us is to release every three weeks. And even though three is an arbitrary number, having a limit for when you have to release has proven really useful for us because when we got started, we just said like, okay, we want to push once we have significant changes. And when you do that, you enable yourself to extend the release date uh, every time something new comes up. And there was always, you know, a really nice feature we were about to add or some bug fixing we were doing. And sometimes our sprints, you know, would last for, instead of two or three weeks, they would last for four or five weeks because we were so close to pushing this new incredible feature. And then someone find a bug and we had to go back and fix it. So yeah, I think that being super strict about when you have to release and you know whatever gets to that release gets to that release and whatever doesn't make it to that release is just pushed over to the next one. And being okay with that, I think it's a really important thing when you're planning your releases. Do you have some best practices to keep up with user feedback or like App Store ratings and comments? Yeah, we, we try to do a lot of feedback early. We have musicians testing the app constantly. We try to get them a build like the closest to a release candidate as early as, you know, Monday. The week before we're planning to release, we usually plan releases for Monday or Tuesday. So if anything breaks, then we're going to be at work the other day. Uh, we try, you know, not to release on Friday. So we're not expanding our weekends uh, fixing bugs. So yeah, we try to get as much feedback as possible from our musicians and our beta testers on quite some time before releasing. So in that way, we are able to catch problems as soon as possible. And we sometimes even send like development builds for a specific feature that needs, you know, a lot of testing. And we are very clear about what type of build they get and what to expect from it. You know, if a development build doesn't have every feature working, that's totally fine. We try to make sure that they only test what needs to be tests. So that got us like pretty good results over this period of time. You know, you mentioned testing. Um, so are you doing unit testing, integration testing, like end-to-end -end testing? What sort of testing do you guys do? Uh, we do a bit of everything. Of course, unit testing is a critical part of, I would like to say, any any software development team. And we also do, with, with music apps, uh, sometimes it's a bit hard to test, to automate like the core testing because you cannot do like recordings on the simulator, on CI or locally on tests. So it's a bit hard to track like when to simulate a user playing the piano or a user singing, 
but everything else, we try to add tests for it. And we also do screenshot testing, which proved to be super useful from time to time. And we also have UI tests to make like an, a whole suite testing, which Apple provides all the tools. Uh, I know there's a lot of frameworks out there that let you do the same and maybe even in a faster way. But, you know, we, we decided to stick to Apple's technologies. So we get whatever they release on the, on the new Xcode version or, or on the improvements, like you get them for free. So that's been a, a good investment. And yeah, we try to do the whole suite, maybe not run them every time because of course, you know, U, UI tests are pretty slow and screenshot testing is, it's not super slow, but it's not as fast as snapshot testing. That's what we do. Snapshot testing is not as fast as unit tests. So we don't run them every, every single time. But yeah, we try to keep our code base well tested. And how do you decide when to run your UI tests or your snapshot tests? We're now running snapshot tests all the time, and we are doing UI tests when there's like significant changes to the flow. Uh, of course, we set this up like dynamically. If a certain amount of files get changed or if files in certain folder get changed, we do trigger like the test for UI tests and of course before tagging a making a release branch we will run them or every release branch runs them like that's when we want to make sure that everything works because you know if you're going to run your tests for 20 minutes 25 minutes because you changed you know one line in a string or in a calculation then sometimes you know your unit test already covers that case in 100% so maybe you want it to get it fast and, and merge. So yeah, we do it dynamically and that's pretty, pretty good as well. Wow, really advanced stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, is that once you get the hang of CI and how it works, you're the user of it, right? When you work on a, as a developer on a team that uses CI, you're constantly like dogfooding your own implementation. You'll send PRs every day and from time to time, you said like, oh, well, I wished this was faster. I wish it didn't run this test this time. I wished it report back the errors on the tests straight into GitHub. Once you start to get the hang of it, it's, it's re really not that difficult to add all of that. For example, one pain point with the snapshot testing for our team, which is a small team. So uh, it's not like we have someone dedicated to our tools, our CI all the time. So we do what will give us the most benefit for you know lower time invested one pain point with screenshot testing was the fact that if the screenshot failed you had to go into the ci into bitrise and download the images from the apps and artifacts tab which is again not complicated but it adds an extra step and we say like well wouldn't it be nice if it tells you you know exactly which test failed and since we already have the screenshot that failed and the difference it will post it you know, as an image on the PR saying like, hey, I tried to run the test and this unit test failed and this screenshot test failed with this screenshot and I was expecting this other one. So, you know, straight from the PR, you get everything ready to go back into it on your code and fix it instead of having to navigate the CI logs and download everything. And I think that's, that's really powerful. Very cool. So you're basically using Bitrise to comment on the pull request with the test to fail and the screenshot. Yeah, we use we use this tool called Danger, 
which was an originally a Ruby tool. I think it's written in Ruby, but it has, you know, a Swift implementation as well and JavaScript implementation as well, which acts as an intermediate between the GitHub API and, and the team. So it has the ability to comment in your pull requests, access the GitHub APIs as well. So yeah, we use that to send whatever comment we want. Very nice. Do you think, you know, having the ability to to run, you know, iPad and iPhone apps on the Mac will actually expand the potential user base, you know, maybe increase revenues for app developers? Oh, that's a good question because I'm I'm not sure. Like I'm a heavy Mac user and I wouldn't like an, an iOS or iPad app to work exactly the same. What they pictured at WWDC this year was, you know, a straight port from an iOS app to the Mac that required tapping, like clicking with your with the trackpad or your mouse. As a heavy user, you, es- you expect another type of behavior on the Mac. And one thing that I'm not certain how it's gonna work is, are these, these apps gonna be available for downloading straight into Mac OS with no extra payment? Let's say you bought the app on the iOS, then you will be able to download it on the Mac. I think that's a, a delicate subject which might not be great for developers because, you know, if it works on both on two platforms, then you should probably, you know, purchase two different apps or two different licenses or whatever. And the developer that created the iOS version maybe wants to do a Mac version with support for, I don't know, shortcuts or better system integrations or a lot more features that they could add to the iOS version. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how everything will plan out with this particular feature. Yeah, and definitely the route now to building Mac apps has definitely widened for, you know, iOS developers in particular. You know, I know with Mac Catalyst and Universal apps that, you know, a lot, a lot of people that are mobile developers are now desktop developers as well. Right, having the ability to build Mac apps with with Swift, Swift UI is just, uh, it opens the gate so much more because, you know, AppKit was a completely foreign framework for iOS developers, perhaps, well, not that foreign, but it means learning, relearning a lot more things. But with SwiftUI, we got this app example called Fruta app, which, you know, builds for iOS, iPadOS, and macOS. And even though it has its its problems or its layout issues or bugs, you know, it's, it's a great first step to building great Mac apps with SwiftUI, or at least building uh, parts of the app where SwiftUI will shine. Maybe, you know, not 100% of your app, but there's a lot of places where using SwiftUI is really convenient. So, Marcos, I'd like to go back a little bit to when you were talking about your team setup. You've done quite a lot of freelancing and remote work, and there are a lot of people involved in these projects, like musicians, testers, and designers, etc. And uh, when you start researching DevOps, one of the first things that comes up like every article mentions it, is the close collaboration within the team and with other teams. So if I understand correctly, you work a lot with people you've never really met in real life. So how does this work in your case? One of the things about this mobile DevOps thing is that this is kind of a new concept. Like we didn't used to have good CI, CD infrastructures a few years ago. it's kind of new newish and i recommend that any developer 
that you know uses CI on on their on their team gets gets their feet wet with uh, with CI and play around with it and see what they could do to to improve their their team's productivity. And with regards to the remote working, it's funny because uh, in 2020, basically everyone became a, a remote worker, right? All the developers, at least you know, on my on my Twitter timeline switch to remote working and i've been doing this for the past five years and everyone is fascinated that they don't have to commute anymore but it has you know it has its perks and it has its negative aspects as well you know you basically never leave the office you know your computer is a few steps away from you even when you're chilling after work and you get a notification then you know you're one step away from sitting down and trying to fix that bug you got reported so I, I think it's very important, you know, to draw draw the line there. With regards, you know, the collaboration, as yeah, as you mentioned, we work with with musicians and we work with product people and we work with designers, uh, which we cannot expect them to know a lot about Xcode and about building our features or PRs on their own devices. Of course, we rely on on test flight to to send out bills from time to time. But again, that process is not always very uh, intuitive because you know you get an app version and maybe you're not sure what you need to test and the test notes are presented once. Uh, so one thing we do to, to increase this is that we enable builds from PRs. And uh, what we do is like we host them on Bitrise since we already use Bitrise to test everything. Those PRs that are tagged are labeled under a build, like should create a build. That's something that we do on CI as well to dynamically decide if we should do a build or not based on GitHub labels. And we will generate a build for a specific PR, usually for big PRs that change, you know, add a new a new feature or fix some, some critical functionality. And we will send them over to the product people and the musicians and these little builds, we add them like the PR number to the app icon and we set the PR number on the bundle identifier as well. So they always know what they're exactly testing, even though they're not aware of what the PR is or the technical terms behind it, they just get a build that has a different icon. So they already know exactly what they're talking and any feedback that they send back will be sent with uh, this new bundle identifier that, that references the PR exactly. So that's a great feature for everyone because when we send one of these builds to the musicians, they just, you know, look at the app icon and say like, oh, I had a problem in the app icon that has the number a thousand. So, oh, okay, we know it's the PR a thousand. That's it. Really helps us out uh, debug problems faster and, and be more productive. Do you use some other tools to facilitate this collaboration? Like not necessarily CI. Not right now. I know there's a lot of tools that let you submit your builds and have, you know, a bunch of testers download it and push release notes and everything. But we usually, we, we like to use whatever we had already set up. So it was super simple to set all this up with Bitrise and whatever we need to, to scale or to change, uh, we can do it manually without depending on, you know, third-party services. So we're we're pretty close on the tail end of WWDC, and you know I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, features that excited you from WWDC. You know anything that you've tried since it was released? Yeah, I like the of course the updates to Swift UI. 
Um, I think that's like the big milestone for any iOS developer coming into the future. Uh, maybe we're, we're perhaps not ready to use it 100% right now, but let's remember that the framework was released just one year ago, and it doesn't make sense to ask for absolutely every feature uh, being done on you know version one or version two, mostly because if you get a framework with that tries to do everything at once, then you'll probably be stuck with those errors in the long term. I'd rather get incremental updates that work correctly and new types like, I don't know, the new color picker is, is really nice. And I bet that if they had that same implementation, you know, one year ago, they would have released it, but maybe it's better to wait a bit longer and get like something that works great out of the box. So the, the improvements to Swift UI, of course, app widgets and app clips are really exciting technologies. And some people might say like, oh, we already had that on Android a while back. And I think that's fine. I don't get, I don't get caught in the, in the mobile OS wars. I think if, if it's released right now, it's because of a reason and app clips uh, right now makes a ton of sense with signing with Apple and Apple Pay, even though it's not available here in, in my country. I think now that feature with the ecosystem at this point makes a lot of sense. Of course, you know, the ability, the having ARM Max is just like Apple Silicon, the Apple Silicon chip is just super exciting for, for the future. I know some, some folks already have the DTK available, the developer toolkit and have been playing with this Mac mini that has an, that has an iPad pro chip at their homes. And of course they're not available to say anything but that's super exciting. You know, the ability to run iOS apps on the Mac, it's super interesting. You know, we, we've talked a lot about different things in the mobile space, and I'd love to get your thoughts on, um, you know, what sort of future trends of mobile development you see coming in, in the future, maybe, you know, the next year or the next five years, next 10 years. Of course, I'm going to talk about the Apple ecosystem because that, that's what I work with and that's what I'm more experienced with. And the, the future is, it's, it's really bright. Like with every new release, um, even things that are not yet there in, in the mainstream, like things like ARKit, one, you know, a couple years ago when they released the first version, one would say like, oh, this is a nice tool for games or for prototype apps. But things are starting to get really good with tracking. You know, now you can track stuff behind re real objects and that you know raises the question is are we going to have uh, those VR glasses that <laughs> they've been talking about like the rumors been talking about so that would be like the craziest jump in how we think about interfaces and user interaction as developers i think being part of that jump would be would be super excited because of course you know swift ui and all those new frameworks and being able to build Mac apps with SwiftUI is super exciting, but it doesn't really change the, the core underlying of how the app works. Like the user will not care if the app is built in SwiftUI or if, it built, if it's built on AppKit or UIKit. Like, of course, you'd probably be able to push features and fixes faster, but like something that comes to change everything on the user experience side i think that's that's like the thing i'm excited about the most for the for the next 
uh, five to ten years. Yeah, definitely. I you know I used to build a lot of augmented reality apps. You know, in the early days of smart glasses, and you know at the time this was around 2014. It was just a very kind of hyped area. The the hardware hadn't really caught up. But, you know, seeing now the advancements in the processing capabilities and, and how that Apple are able to occlude objects like you were mentioning, you know, I can really see it like right now. It's actually at the point where it's a viable solution to, you know, a problem. So I, re- I really do think augmented reality is going gonna, is gonna to take off uh, quite a bit. Even in the enterprise space, augmented reality for warehouse picking, right? So you can imagine somebody picking items to send them off via package, having an augmented reality heads up display can really speed up their their working process. So, you know, I definitely see augmented reality hitting the enterprise space quite quite big and definitely the, the mobile gaming space as well. You know, it's, it's just a super fun thing to actually, you know, take that game off your screen and throw it onto your floor and let your kids play with it, right? Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. So... On a more personal note, this is something we ask everyone, and it's uh, how would you describe your job to your parents? <laughs> oh, that's that's a good question. I think they didn't really understand what I was doing for the first year or two years because they didn't used to have smartphones when I got started into iOS development. Once they started, once they got they got into iOS, they started to know more about apps and what they do. So, so they got the hang of it, but for one or two years, it was uh, Marcus that software. That's all they, they knew. Like that's all they understand from it. Uh, it didn't really matter if it was app software or web development or web websites. They just said the word software <laughs> until, you know, they, they got the hang of it and were able to show their friends, no, he works on mobile apps, specialized on iOS development and creates stuff like this or that. So it definitely took them a time to understand it. Yeah, it's funny because my mom keeps thinking that we are selling mobile phones. I'm like, no, it's the <laughs> software. And she's like, but how do you take out like so many mobile phones to Japan when you go to the conference? <laughs> it's, it's really difficult. Yeah, it sounds like a difficult thing to explain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think in a lot of cases, people don't really get the, the fundamental difference between building mobile apps and writing mobile apps, right? Um, and that's always hard, right? Because, you know, you explain that, oh, you know, I help people build mobile apps. But it, like, we don't, we don't actually go in and help you write the code. We just help you create the installable artifact, you know, test the app, things like that. And so that, that's always a challenge just to to kind of level set people on what, what exactly it is. Another thing I wanted to ask, if you could talk to your younger self, not that you're super old, but uh, what advice you would give yourself? I, I thought about this in the past. And one thing I wish I've done earlier was uh, investigate more about, you know, the different career opportunities and, what different people are building in different spaces. Of course, it's natural to think like, oh, I wish I started developing when I was younger. So now I would have you know, a lot of years of experience and I'd be more proficient. But of course, that sometimes it's not the case. And I would suggest two things to you know, people that's just getting started is number one, and, and by far like the more important thing that I wish I've done when I got started is to reach out to the community 
to get to know other people that are doing the same. I remember I joined the first meetup I went to. I was already like three or four, three years experience into into the job and like meeting with so many people that does the same thing as you and goes through the same processes and you know understand what it's like to be fixing bugs that you cannot understand why why things are not working uh what's what's was a really nice experience and of course i made a ton of friends so that's my number one recommendation you know to reach out to communities everyone is at least the ios community or the people that i that i've met are you know wonderful people and super open to help out someone that's just getting started and twitter is a great service for this there's like a lot of people willing to help out yeah i'll stick to that recommendation yep yeah, that's really good advice. I guess you also need to be kind of extroverted to be able to reach out or need a bit of courage. But I guess with time, it becomes easier. Yeah, but once you get over that barrier, you realize that everyone else is you know, in the same spot or was in your spot a few years ago. So they're super understanding about someone asking questions or wanting to get better. And in fact, like I love when someone reaches out and say like, hey, I'm just getting started. Uh, would you point me out to what can I read? What can I learn? And yeah, that like I'm excited to answer that those type of questions. Oh yeah, that actually brings me to the next question about what would you recommend as a learning material to people? Oh, this is this is the best part. Like there's so many good content out there. There's lo- so many free content. There's paid content as well, but. Like there's so many people sharing stuff online. I personally always recommend, you know, Mengto courses. I used to work with him at Design Plus Code. There's always uh, Two Straws, which is Paul Hudson, which which has this blog called Hacking with Swift, which put and he pushes so many free content out there. He has books as well. There's this person Jordan Singer. He's doing. He's like recreating Apple apps with Swift UI like he pushes a new app open source every day and it's just insane like the amount of content you might get from twitter or from github just by following these people that you know they push code out there and it's like exactly the same code that we do on our day-to-day work it's like exactly what we're paid to do you can learn it from these people uh pushing pushing free content out there that's really cool i didn't even know about the last one yeah, I'm familiar with uh, hacking with Swift, of course. So do you have any really interesting plans for the future? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess I I would like to focus on the community more. I would love to push more content out there. You know, I have my own website with my blog. And of course, you cannot do absolutely everything. So I, I don't push much. But I would I would love to push, you know, more contents push more videos, explaining things, especially this, this type of CI things that could really benefit, you know, small teams. Maybe I understand that big companies have dedicated teams for this, but small teams could really benefit from this type of, of content. I, I wish I could, you know, put a bit more effort into generating content for people that's getting started with it, because that's exactly how I, how I built my, my own career and made a, a job out of reading other people's posting stuff online. You know, really appreciate you, uh, you know, chatting with us and, and talking us through all these cool ways that you're using BitRise and seeing all the progress you're making in the open source space and 
and having all of those projects, you know, validated by Apple actually introducing it out of the box. You know, I think it really shows that you're, you know, you're a thought leader in the space and super promising future I see ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Damon. Oh, that's such a nice way to end the podcast. Yeah, Marcus, that was really inspiring. Thank you so much again for coming here today. It's been great talking to you. And everyone, you can follow Marcus on Twitter at Marcus Griselli or check out his projects at mark.codes. You'll be able to find these in the show notes as well. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.